Thanks for downloading the UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. For more information, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. This episode features a lecture given at the Memory, Space and New Technology Symposium, which took place on the 12th of June 2015 at the Dunleary Institute of Art, Design and Technology. The symposium was supported by the Spatial Arts and Visualisation Project, a collaboration between University College Dublin, the National College of Art and Design and the Institute of Art, Design and Technology, and financially supported by the Higher Education Authority. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. This lecture, one of three recorded at the symposium, was entitled We Manage Not to Know, Asylum Seekers, Ireland and the Return of the Repressed. The lecture was given by Professor Renate Lenton of Trinity College, Dublin. It was introduced by Dr Jenny MacDonald from the Institute of Art, Design and Technology. Renate Lenton, first of all, is... Is, uh, is going to be speaking on We Managed Not to Know, Asylum Seekers, Ireland and the Return of the Repressed. Uh, Renit has recently retired yeah, as, as Associate Professor of Sociology at Trinity College Dublin um, and she has published very widely and very prolifically, including most recently um, a book entitled Migrant Activism and Integration from Below in Ireland with Elena More- uh, Moreo in 2012. All right, thanks very much. This is exciting, particularly I'm energized by the fact that the industrial school is out there. Uh, So in September, last September, residents of several asylum centers in Ireland staged protests against their incarceration. Since April 2000, uh, asylum seekers have been dispersed to direct provision centers managed managed by for-profit private companies under the supervision of the Reception and Integration Agency, uh, which is an arm of the Department of Justice, and costing the state allegedly 50 million uh, euro per annum. Residents uh, who get bed and board are not allowed to work or access uh, third-level education and are given a small uh, weekly, as it's called, residual income maintenance payment to cover personal uh, um, uh, requisites, and it's 19 euro 10 per adult uh, and 9 euro 60 per child per week. Steve Loyal calls the direct provision centers total institutions where residents are controlled as to what and when they eat, who they share rooms with, who can visit them, and what access they have to various facilities like freshers, laundries, etc. And he argues that the negatively socially valued category of asylum seeker becomes a, their main status. Although the direct provision system was originally intended for six, a six-month stay, on average, people stay for 48 months, and 27% stay for over six years, leading to people becoming de-skilled, bored, institutionalized, and destitute. Ethna Luvedes argues that direct provision institutionalized the construct of the asylum seeker as a distinct, undesirable type of person who must be subjected to relations of governance that were intended to deter, control, and incapacitate. Many asylum seekers live with deportation orders, and all of this makes them what the political, uh, Italian political uh, theorist Giorgio Agamben calls bare life at the mercy of the laws of the sovereign state, which excuses and excludes itself from these very laws. The protesting direct provision residents demanded that all asylum centers be closed, that all deportations uh, be ended, and that all residents be given permission to stay, live, and study in Ireland legally. In October 
2014, apparently responding to these protests, although maybe not, the government appointed a working group to report to government uh, on improvements to the uh, protection uh, to the protection process, including the provision uh, centers. Uh, and this was made up of migrant support NGOs and really with no significant membership from asylum seekers. While the Deputy Justice Minister, Egon um, Reardon, acknowledged that the direct provision centers are inhumane and that the way we, and I quote, we treat asylum seekers and people in the direct provision system says a lot about us as a country, the working group was charged by, uh, with uh, reforming rather than closing the system. In this paper, I want to do two things and kind of interlinked. Firstly, I want to say that just like the Irish state and society managed to ignore workhouses, mental health uh, institutions, mother and baby homes, Magdalene laundries, and industrial schools, they also now manage not to know about the plight of asylum seekers, precisely because direct provision isolates asylum seekers, makes them dependent, and makes it difficult for them to organize on a national level. Not impossible, but difficult. Since managing not to know or disavowing erases the direct provision system from Irish, the Irish collective consciousness, I suggest that asylum seekers represent the return of the Ireland's repressed, confronting Irish people with their own experiences of immigration emigration. Secondly, I'd like to say that direct provision residents taking action and representing themselves can no longer simply be theorized as a Gambian's bare life at the mercy of sovereign power to whom everything is done, but rather have to be regarded as active agents of resistance. Now, denial, according to Stan Cohen, is always a paradox. In order to use the term denial to describe a person's statement, I don't know, one has to assume that she knows exactly what she says she doesn't know. Again, the public uh, shock about the revelations since the uh, 1990s about uh, the incarceration of unmarried mothers in mother and baby homes and Magdalene laundries and the abuse of thousands of children in industrial schools represent a disavowal of something Irish people had been aware of all along, but were repressing. Ireland has a breathtaking history of incarceration. According to a recent book by O'Sullivan and O'Donnell, the Irish state locked up up to one in every hundred of its citizens in mental hospitals, Magdalene laundry, mother, baby homes, industrial school. And this continued the legacy of the 1838 Irish Poor Law, which resulted in the, in the um, establishment of 130 workhouses to cater, cater for the destitute poor during the famine, but continued quite late afterwards. At any given time between 1926 and 1931, 1951, sorry, 31,000 Irish people were incarcerated in these institutions. And this also applied to children. One in every hundred Irish children were in industrial schools. Fintan O'Toole links this incarceration to emigration, which banished many misfits who might otherwise have been locked up. The fact that the Irish institutions of incarceration were located in the midst of Irish towns and cities throughout the, the country meant that claiming not to know was at best disingenuous. According to O'Toole, the system served as a warning to the disobedient, particularly as, as it was family members themselves who were forcing pregnant daughters into Magdalene laundries and sending the hapless children of poor or bad mothers into industrial schools where many were physically, sexually, and emotionally abused. The harm done to the uh, people incarcerated was augmented by the damage done to Irish society as a whole, 
as, according to Toole, it taught the whole society very deep habits of collusion, evasion, and perhaps most insidiously of all, of adaptation. The, this mechanism of denial of what we actually know can be illuminated by reading Freud's work on the unfamiliar or uncanny, which he called that class of the terrifying, which leads back to something long known to us, once very familiar, which can become uncanny and frightening. Freud, in, Freud uh, stresses that, that we often repress that which we are afraid of, which is familiar or known to us, but yet it becomes estranged in the process of repression. But the repressed, he insists, always returns to haunt. The incarceration system, which Irish society knew but chose not to know about, was only acknowledged publicly in the mid-1990s after media exposures of industrial schools and Magdalene laundries. Now, I propose that these revelations that Irish society was forced to acknowledge, or the return of Ireland repressed, preceded the choice now not to know about asylum seekers dispersed to direct provision centers and living in intolerable conditions due to their dehumanization, removal from sight, and corruption by successive government as mainly a financial burden. Like its history of incarceration, Ireland also has a, huge, a, a shocking history of a refugee reception history. Having refused to admit more than 60 Jewish refugees during the Nazi era, and this is between 1933 and 1946, Ireland has accepted small groups of so-called program refugees in 56, 72, 79, 85, 92. Asylum seekers who are convention refugees began arriving later uh, in the early 90s, and the number um, of applications rose from 39 in 1992 to a peak of um, um, almost 12,000 in 2002. And it has been decreasing ever since, mostly because people are not given permission to present their application. Between 2000 and 2014, Ireland received something like 68,000 asylum applications. And since 2000, provided accommodation to something like 52,000 applicants. In the last figure that we have in January 2015 shows that 4,675 people, including almost 1,500 children, were housed in 34 direct provision centers. And crucially, in 2014, Ireland has the lowest number of new applications per 1 million of the population in the EU and the and lowest, second lowest refugee acceptance in the EU. Now, Fiona Fitzsimons is a social historian who compared the direct provision system to the old workhouses. And she said, like in the workhouses, the direct provision centers system has meal breaks at specific times of the day and a curfew system at night. But unlike the workhouses, the people detained in the direct provision system do not have the freedom to leave. They haven't broken any laws to end up there, but they are in the direct provision system indefinitely as they wait for the case to be concluded. Furthermore, Irish people adopt an out-of-sight, out-of-mind attitude to asylum seekers in direct provision, and the disavowal of asylum seekers' living conditions arguably makes direct provision centers zones of exception, which, according to Agamben, positions residents outside the law, between inside and outside. Direct provision centers, like similar state-sponsored enclaves of non-existent right, signal, according to Agamben, a sort of surplus of bare life, that can no longer be contained within the political order of nation states, yet cannot be entirely disposed of, and is thus trapped in between, in between spaces and statuses. 
This arguably relegates asylum seekers to Agamben's extrajudicial extra category of bare life, she who can be disposed of with impunity by the sovereign, who puts himself above the law, employed to isolate, separate, and eventually dispose of population deemed superfluous, dangerous, or polluting. Thus isolated asylum seekers, the, like the residents of Ireland's workhouses, mental hospitals, industrial schools, Magdalene laundries, and mother baby homes, and I keep kind of referring to this because it's important to, to show that it's not new, um, are perched at the edge of Irish life and disavowed by, as Irish society manages not to know of their existence. Uh, long ago, in 2002, in the first book on racism and anti-racism in Ireland, I argued that during the Celtic Tiger, Ireland's vehement rejection of in-migration entailed a disavowal of the pain of emigration. The immig immigrant other, I argued, represents the return of Ireland repressed and the painful experience of emigration known to every Irish family, but arguably this disavowed during the boom years. Denying the, that Irish people could be racist, because after all, you were colonized and you were racialized by the British, and disavowing both the pain of emigration and the experiences of immigrants, Irish society was looking away, but also looking and not looking at the forbidden other, who, I argued, represented what Irish people did not want to see, namely themselves undressed. Now, moving from 2002 to 2015, which 15 years of direct provision, low refugee acceptance rates, and with emigration returning as a major social force, disavowal is again beginning, becoming apparent. The familiar of forced emigration is returning to haunt Ireland's collective consciousness, making Irish people again disavow the plight of people seeking refuge in their midst. In the process, Freud's familiar becomes uncanny and frightening, enabling the denial of not of not of what we do not know, but of what we know only too well. The protests by residents of asylum centers, extensively reported actually by social and mass media, confront, Ar confront Ireland with the return of its emigratory repressed, which although acknowledged, also entailed the choice made by many Irish people to disavow the uncanny parallel, and this rep is represented by asylum seekers who are still languishing in the direct provision centers as we speak. During the 2014 protests, people spoke of the inadequate food, being unable to cook for the families, to fulfill the mothering roles, <clears throat> but managing, management providing out of date, insufficient food served at specific hours and not available uh, out of hours, and this leaves many children hungry. Grievances include the uh, indignity of parents having to uh, share rooms with their children. And this often, according to one speaker in a demonstration we, we had, um, um, to inappropriate, precocious sexual behavior by young children and having to share rooms with people whose languages they don't know. So I wanted to theorize asylum seekers as Agamben's bare life, inmates in what he called the camp system, a pure, absolute, and impassable biopolitical space of exception, which distinguishes and separates what is inside from what is outside, the lives controlled by the sovereign state and its agents, here management and staff of the direct provision centers. But there was something missing. Though the theory seems appropriate to thinking about the governing of asylum seekers' lives, it is ultimately inadequate in describing the conditions of the asylum 
um, direct provision centers. The shocking revelation, for instance, that 61 people have died in direct provision in Ireland since 2002, 16 of them children under five, prompts me to argue that the biopolitical management of inmates' lives can become its opposite, what uh, Honaida Rannem called in another context, thanatopolitics, the management of death and destruction. A government further argues that by incarcerating refugees into zone of an exception, the sovereign state differentiates between man and citizen. But his Eurocentric analysis does not focus on race. It doesn't include race at all. Yet this differentiation, this differentiation between man and citizen, or woman and citizen, is highly racialized. The racialization, racialized differentiation was consolidated in Ireland in the 2004 citizenship referendum, as you all know, that changed the uh, entitlement to citizenship from people born on the island of Ireland to people only born to citizen, citizens. Though Agamben's work about zone of exception and bare life has proven useful in critical race and migration studies, William Walters argues that um, Agamben positioned refugees as subject to whom all manners of things are done, often in arbitrary and violent ways, but rarely as agents in their own right. And I propose that positioning refugees as mere victims of sovereign governmentalities is far from the reality, as a, protest, a recent protest have uh, demonstrated. It is, however, worth noting that the 2014 protests were not the first time that asylum seekers in Ireland staged a protest. After the 1956 uh, Soviet invasion of Hungary, Ireland accepted 530 Hungarian refugees as part of the UNHCR resettlement program. They settled them in an old army camp beside, outside Limerick and expected them to find jobs and not, not become a burden on the state. But this did not provide ideal conditions. And in, two years later, having staged a hunger strike, all but 61 of the original group had left, and those who remained were destitute and dependent on the state. Then in the mid-1990s, a group of asylum seekers established the Association of Refugees and Asylum Seekers in Ireland, ARASI, to explicitly campaign for the right of asylum seekers and against racism. These various strategies, including demonstrations, lobbying, school visits, and media campaigns, but Arasi was really the independent voices of uh, asylum seekers. At the same time, Irish refugee support NGOs were competing with it for funding, and um, according to the UNHCR, the Arasi was becoming too aggressive and too African. The result was the appropriation of Arasi by the Spirit and Fathers, who initially gave them free office space, but ended up appropriating Arasi's activities and replacing them with their own organization, which was called Spirasi, and basically they undermined Arasi's activities. Now, Kensika Moshengo, who is a former Arasi member, reflected on what he calls Spirasi's charity model colonial takeover, he says when Arasi rebelled against the introduction of direct provision in 2000, members were prevented from visit, visiting hostels to mobilize support. And Arasi basically took over and paralyzed Arasi, which existed for a couple of years but disappeared. So these two historical examples of asylum seekers actively protesting against the conditions illustrate for me two points. Firstly, Arasi members who were able to mobilize because they were not in direct provision, they were allowed to live in urban centers, merely Dublin, and thus organized. And by contrast, the Hungarian refugees, just like present-day um, asylum seekers, were not free to mobilize and organize 
due to being housed in remote locations and being deprived of the freedom of movement. Now, they weren't not allowed to move, but if you, if you don't uh, stay in the uh, direct provision center for three nights, you lose your place. Secondly, the appropriation of Farasi by Spirasi is a textbook illustration of how the concerns and voices of asylum seekers in Ireland are disavowed and hidden from view and yet can easily be taken over by Irish NGO, as is evident in the membership of the government working group. Interestingly, the marriage referendum debate, uh, which just, uh, Brian and I just spoke about, uh, the Yes campaign did not represent migrants, and it was left to uh, anti-racism network Ireland to remind campaigners that firstly, marriage equality is also an issue for migrants, and secondly, that the referendum was about equality and not about marriage, and I'm sure Anne will say something about that later. And this leads me to emphasize the huge importance of the protests staged by direct provision residents. The protests brought their plight to public knowledge and led to political responses by groups such as ARN, Anti-Racist Network Ireland and Anti-Deportation Ireland, and paralleled the establishment of MASI, the Movement of Asylum Seekers in Ireland. Again, I think Anne will speak a bit more about that. We both are working with them, but Anne is much more active than I am there. The protest demonstrates, as Walter argues, that theorizing asylum seekers merely as bare life subject to the sovereign arbitrary rule is no longer sufficient and that the protests are acts of resistance in the best sense of the word. As Mulhall, Anne, and Gavin Titley argue, the Department of Justice may gesture toward treating asylum seekers with respect and dignity, but it's hard to imagine great, a greater indignity than constantly being spoken about and for. The protests also demonstrated the celebration of Irish interculturalism by government, NGOs, and activists are shrouded in denial, negating the multicultural and the diverse, the real reality, and obscuring the experiences of asylum seekers languishing in direct provision centers. I just want to conclude by arguing, first of all, that alongside the disavowal of Ireland's so-called hidden villages and of asylum seekers' lived experiences, the discourse of inter- and multiculture this really disavowed the racialization of people incarcerated in direct provision. Uh, writing about migrant-led activism in post-boom post Ireland, I argue that despite in, uh, appropriation and despite competition by Irish-led NGOs, and despite faint echoes of earlier discourse of multiculturalism, which uh, still prevail but with very low budgets now, independent migrant activists re refuse to be co-opted. Groups such as Anti-Racism Ireland, Network Ireland, and Massey refuse to apply for any government or European funding and make clear that the demands, the demands for closing the direct provision centers uh, and reject, uh, rejecting any leaked kind of reports of piecemeal reform and leave to remain for some, as has been in the media recently, and they reiterate the agency and resolve. Irish society, as we speak, continues to disavow the direct provision center that, despite the successful protests, remain hidden from public view. And this, uh, that's why this conference is so, is so welcome. But I think it brings into view what has been hidden. These protests, I would argue again, counter the return of the Irish emigratory repressed as Irish society laments the current emigration trends and the demise of Celtic capitalism. Although what the government wants us to do is to recuperate and have capitalism yet again. <clears throat> but despite the con horrific condition of the Irish states forces them to live in, asylum seekers are far from victims or bare life and remain clear about the political demand, which, as I said, are closing down the system, 
permission for all of them to live and work and study in Ireland and ending all deportations. Uh, I think they're goals that Anna and I fully support. Thank you very much.